Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. That's good. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you. Welcome. My name is Miles, and uh, as Gapreet said, I'm one of the elders here at Harvest, and uh, I'm excited for the privilege to uh, be able to teach today. A little about myself, I am a uh, high school or secondary English teacher at a local international school, and so in some way you could say that I make a living standing in front of a room full of people teaching about books. But this is my first time getting to stand in front of people and teach from this book. And so as a lover of Christ and a lover of books, uh, this is a, a special moment and opportunity for me. Unlike the books that I usually teach, the author of this book is not only the creator of the universe, but it is the same God that has rescued myself and my family and so many people I love from the uh, the grasps of death. And so needless to say, I'm excited, but also pretty nervous to have the opportunity to teach here today. I'm going to be teaching from 1 John 5, uh, the first 12 verses. So if you have your Bible or your phone with you today, you can go ahead and turn there now. I'll give you a few seconds. As a reminder, you can find 1 John uh, towards the end of your Bible. If you get to Revelations, you've gone too far. And if you don't have your Bible with you today, it's okay because we have it right here on the screen as well. In fact, I'll just read from the screen here. All right, so we're in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is the word of our Lord. Now, I'd like to begin today's lesson with an image 
<clears throat> it's a slow motion video of two of my children jumping into a pool uh, at the top of some hotel in KL. Now, I think we can learn a lot from children. And in particular, I think children can teach us quite a bit about faith. That is the belief in things unseen. Even the way my children enter a pool suggests a remarkable faith, a faith that I simply do not have. If you were to compare my children to how I enter a swimming pool, you would see two very different things. I like to start with my toes, and then if the sun is hot enough, I might make my way to my knees. And then from there, there's about a 50-50 chance of whether I'll go deeper, depending on what my kids are doing in the pool. And I think this is a good illustration of what faith looks like for different people. For some of us, we never even get in the pool. Those are the people without faith. Some, like my children, have a radical faith. They jump in with their arms wide open. But I think most of us are like me. It's a slower process. We need someone to prod us and to push us, to encourage us, and to draw us deeper. Today, I'm going to be talking about faith why we need to go deeper, why we can trust the deep end, and what to do next. And I have three main ideas that hopefully will answer these questions. The first one is going to look at the first five verses. It's called the power of our faith. And I'll talk about three ways that our faith changes our lives. And then in verses six through nine, we'll go to the second point. It's called the proof of our faith. And again, three reasons, but this time it's three reasons we can trust our faith in Christ. And then finally, at the very end, the last three verses, I'm going to force everyone in this room to make a decision about whether or not they want to go deeper in their faith. <clears throat> As we look at 1 John 5, sorry, I'm going to be probably drinking a lot of water. I'm really nervous. <clears throat> when we start uh, to look at 1 John 5, to me, it seems like a conclusion and this makes sense to me because this is, after all, the final chapter of 1 John, and it looks like he is summarizing for his readers all of his main ideas that he laid out in the first four chapters, reminding them what faith looks like and feels like so that they might be able to recognize real faith from the false teachings of the time. John begins his conclusion by outlining some characteristics of a Christ follower, and those will be the three things that we talk about in a moment. But first, I want to point out how John frames his outline, meaning at the beginning and the end, he lists the most essential characteristic for any Christ follower, faith or belief. We see it up here highlighted in verse one. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And then again, in verse five, it says the one who believes. Now, I think and this might just be the English teacher in me, that by framing, John reminds us that faith is essential to everything else that comes with following Jesus. Jesus, our faith in Jesus is the beginning and the end to our spiritual journey. Without faith, there is nothing. I think it's helpful to think of faith as something like the fuel we need to follow Jesus. With that idea, we could do a car analogy. We know that cars can do many things. It can help us get from point A to point B. On a hot day, it can blow cold air into our face. It can help us listen to music. But a car cannot do any of these things without fuel. 
As a Christian, we can do many things that set us apart from this world, but we cannot do any of them without faith. So what are these things that we can do as a Christ follower? And this brings me to my first point. It's called the power of faith. Now, John tells us that faith allows us to do three things. Faith helps us <clears throat> love more. Uh, it helps us become unburdened in our obedience, and it helps us overcome the world. And we're going to look at the first one now. Faith helps us love more. Now, we see love scattered throughout the first few verses. I think it'll come up here. There we go. Yep. Uh, and so we can see here in verses one and two, John is saying that if you have faith, you will be born of God. It says that in verse one, and essentially you will be remade in his image, given a new life, and it is a life marked by love. And this should make sense. I remember last week in Gapreet's lesson, we learned that God is love. So as we come to believe in God or have faith in him, what we're really doing is starting to believe in the existence of a deeper love than we've ever experienced or known here on earth. And as we come to know him, to know God, we are really coming to know that love. And as we come to know this deep gospel love, it makes sense that it would impact our lives, that in return, we would develop a growing love for God, our creator, our savior. And this all makes sense. But it gets even better. In verse 2, John tells us that somehow my love for God, or uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, my love for God's people, his children, meaning all of you in this room, also grows if I have faith. And this seems strange, but gospel love is funny that way. Gospel love seems to not only have the power to transform, but to transmit, to move from one person to another. In other words, gospel love is contagious. And I know this to be true because of my two sisters, Jade and Lily. Jade and Lily were adopted uh, by my father and my stepmother uh, from Cambodia when I was 16 years old. And if you know anything about a 16-year-old, you should know that we are pretty self-centered. And so it wasn't that I didn't love my sisters when these two beautiful girls came into my house, but I didn't really have time for them. I was busy doing my own things that 16-year-olds do. Now, if you had asked me if I loved them at the time, I probably would have said sure. But my love wasn't a deep, sacrificial love. I was too concerned with myself. But over time, my father's love became my love. I watched my father sacrifice for these two beautiful girls. I watched him worry over them and weep over them. And because I loved my father, I came to love what he loved. I loved his adopted children. And this is similar with us in this room. We are adopted by God and united by our father's love. What he loves, we love. The more faith we have in him and his works, the more love we have for him and his children. And even this gets more remarkable when we consider the depth of love that John speaks of in these verses. I think in the song that we just sang, it said something like, uh, a love like this the world has never known. And this is so true. Gospel love is not to be mistaken for the counterfeit love of this world. 
The love that faith gives us is a radical, almost controversial love in its sacrifice. This is the love that brought Jesus to the cross for his enemies. It's the love that scattered his disciples throughout Asia and Europe so that others may know the truth. It's the same love that moved Paul to give up everything, his teachings, years and years of teachings to become a Pharisee, his culture, his identity, and to become a prisoner for the Lord. It's the same love that's moved missionaries for centuries to abandon everything familiar to them and move all over the world to share the gospel love with strangers. In fact, our faith has a history of moving people to give up their careers, their money, their lives, their family for the sake of strangers. The world has no understanding or definition of this type of love. It simply does not make sense to the world. And this is exactly the love that, uh, that faith in Christ leads us to. All right, let's look at the second thing that our faith can help us do. Number two, faith helps our obedience become not burdensome. Verse three tells us this much. It says that his commandments are, I've highlighted it for you, just so you know I'm not making this up. There it is. It's not burdensome. And if you know any human beings, as I know some, you would think that this is very strange. Because the truth is that obedience is burdensome for all of us. Every human that I've ever met, obedience is burdensome. And the reason for this can be traced back to the Garden of Eden. This is when we decided as a race to become rulers of our own, own world. And since then, to obey anything is, has been an attack on our pride. And so today, it's a miracle for us to willingly give up something like our godhood and exchange it for joyful servanthood. But this is the power of faith. John tells us. To illustrate this concept, I'll take you even further back into my childhood. No longer am I 16. Now I'm in first grade, and my family has just packed up and moved, and I've been enrolled into a new elementary school. And this is the worst school that has ever existed. I won't even name it because I might get sued for slander or libel. At this school, and I'm not making these things up here, uh, you couldn't talk during lunchtime. You had to sit in silence with another hundred kids around you and eat your lunches. And at recess time, when we got in trouble, and for me, that was quite often, they actually made us stand up against a chain link fence during playtime if we were in trouble with our hands and our feet spread as if we had just been arrested. And then to make matters worse, on the other side of the chain link fence was a busy road. So the whole community knew when you got in trouble. And again, for me, it was almost every day. At this school, the teacher's names were even mean. My brother's teacher's name, and again, not making this up, was Miss Rathburn. And she was even meaner than her name sounded. Now, to go to this school was a burden. Everything about this school, schoolwork, homework, everything was a burden. But then my life took a change. My family packed up and we moved again. And in second grade, I met Miss Jenkins, God's gift to teaching. <clears throat> Every month or two, Miss Jenkins would pick me up from my house on a Saturday and bring me out for apple walnut pancakes. To this day, I don't know why she did that. She once took me to a strawberry farm and we picked strawberries together. But more than any of this, she made reading and learning come alive for me. I learned to love books and to love learning like Miss Jenkins did. And soon, schoolwork was no longer burdensome. In fact, nothing about school was burdensome. 
I loved it like Miss Jenkins loved it because I had a good master. And so their will became my own. This is the problem with most of us. We are often tricked into following bad masters. The master of looks or outward appearance is never pleased. The master of success will always remind you that others are more successful than you. The master of money tells us to work, 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 even at the expense of relationships. And the master of pleasure, well, anyone who has battled addiction knows this master well and how quickly one moves from happy follower to miserable slave. But this is not so with Christ. The more our faith grows, the more we love our father and his son. Soon his will becomes our own, just like Miss Jenkins' will became my own. We no longer feel the tension of sin, the master pulling us towards righteousness and holiness, but us wanting to go the other way. Instead, we walk together. There is no burden. Faith makes obedience non-burdensome. The final thing John mentions about the power of faith is that faith helps us have victory over the world. And John tells us this in verse four. He says, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ overcomes the world or has victory. Now, it's important to understand what John means here when he says the world. And to understand what he means, we can again go back to the Garden of Eden, back to Genesis, when we as a race decided to become rulers of our own world. And as we know, this hasn't turned out so well. This new world of ours, away from and separated from God, is a world marked by sin and death. But anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, as John tells us in these verses, gets to leave that old world behind and enter a new kingdom. A new world ruled by the Christ himself, one that is in direct conflict with our old world. And in these verses here, John tells us who wins the conflict between old world and new world. Now, a bit of a disclaimer here, victory over the world does not mean that bad things will no longer be around when we have faith. Until the resurrection day, victory is not found in the elimination of the world. It's found in freedom from it. So when darkness of your old world seems to surround you, your faith will remind you that darkness has already been defeated by light. And when your old world tells you that you are not loved, faith will point you to the cross and they'll say, no, you're wrong. You were loved to death. And when the old world makes religion feel like a drudge, faith tells you that Jesus did not die for your works. He died for you. You were enough. And when you feel trapped by sin, Verses like Romans 8.1 reminds us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have faith. Our faith, when we learn to abide in it, gives us freedom from our thoughts, from our sin, from our shame, from our doubt. And with that freedom, we have victory over our old world. Now, <clears throat> maybe all these things sound a little too good to be true. Maybe you're sitting there saying, I want to believe it. I want to have this deep, radical gospel love. I want to have victory over the world, but how can I trust that Jesus really is who the Bible says he is? And that brings us to the next four verses in our second point of the day. It's called the proof of our faith, or how can I be certain that this is real? 
you know, it helps a lot that my son is sitting in the second row, not paying attention. It makes me feel more at home here. So thank you, Quincy. You're making me feel really comfortable. I mean it. Now, when I think about my own struggle to have faith, I think back to my children here jumping into the pool, and I ask myself, why can I not be more like them with my faith? You know, the truth is that despite my father actually being a fisherman when I was young, and my mother also making a living from the ocean, and myself never having lived more than five kilometers from an ocean, I am actually quite terrified of the ocean. And when I think about it, it really is a faith issue. I don't like water that I can't see, and I don't like it because I don't trust what I can't see. Now bring me to Perhentian Islands or some other beautiful islands in Southeast Asia. Bring me to my local pool, and I'm cool. I start to feel confident. I can see my feet when I look down. I feel like I'm in charge of my destiny because I know what's one step ahead. Now I wish this is what our faith was like, but God wants us uh, to draw us out into those deeper, murkier waters, waters where we can't see our feet, where we have to learn to trust him. But these are the exact waters that we don't like. We want a good bit of control in our lives. We want to be sure that the deep, murky waters of our faith are safe. In verses 6 through 9, John attempts to assure his audience that their faith in Christ is, in fact, secure, that the deep waters are actually safe. Faith in Jesus will not leave us floundering or in need. And he presents three pieces of evidence. All of them are listed in verses seven and eight. It says, for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. In other words, we can trust that Jesus is actually the son of God and the savior of mankind because God has shown it to be true. And the way that he showed it to be true was through these three things, water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. And as verse 9 reminds us, if you have your Bible there, you can see it right in front of you. It says God's testimony is even greater than any eyewitness account. So if God is telling us that Jesus is who he says he is, and God is using these three things to testify, then I think we should believe him. Let's take a look at each one. First up, how did God use water to prove that Jesus is the Christ? Now, <clears throat> most scholars believe that uh, when, when John mentions water in these verses, uh, he is actually pointing to the baptism of Jesus. And we can turn to the Gospel of Matthew here to help paint a picture of what that baptism scene looked like. In Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So, as you can see from uh, the verses here, God uses water to not only announce the start of Jesus' ministry, but also to announce his divinity. Jesus, we can picture him still dripping wet, emerging out of the water, is wrapped in light and affirmed by God. Clearly, God makes sure that this is not a normal baptism. And that's because Jesus is not normal. He is not some prophet or some teacher. He is the actual son of God, as God himself testifies 
And this fact that Jesus is God is first made evident to the public at Jesus's water baptism. Now, it's important to note that water plays a symbolic role all throughout Jesus's ministry. Baptism is not the only time that God uses water to establish and affirm Jesus as the living Christ. We'll take a look at some of them real fast. In John 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, it's not just a party favor. It's revealing Jesus's glory, his authority over all things. In Luke 5, when Jesus becomes the world's greatest fisherman, it foreshadows his global mission of saving mankind. In John 5, when Jesus heals the cripple at the pool, it's showing us the transformative power of his grace, the healing power of his ministry. And through that crippled person, it's reminding us of our own need for a savior. In Matthew 8, he calms the stormy waters. We know that story. And it shows that he, is over, he has total control over creation. He is also the peace in the midst of a chaotic world. In Matthew 14, he walks on water, showing his sovereignty over all situations, his divinity, his supernatural power. In John 9, Jesus uses his own spit to heal the blind, showing his ability to literally turn darkness into light. And in John 7, Jesus says the famous words, I am the living water. He is the Messiah, the Christ. You see, water has a significant role in declaring, A, the divinity of Jesus, and B, the saving nature of his mission. God is saying to all of us, if you want proof that Jesus is the Christ, just look at the water. But it's not just the water. Blood is another reason why we can trust the deeper waters of our faith and be sure that Jesus is who the Bible claims him to be. To see the work of blood, we look no further than the cross. This more than anything tells us that Jesus is not just a good person. He is the atonement, the propitiation of our sins, the literal and final sacrifice. And again, we return to Matthew's gospel. This time it's chapter 27, verse 54. It says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, a little bit of context to these verses. The verses come from the very last moments of Jesus's time on the cross. And so we can imagine Jesus completely covered in blood. Blood is dripping from his head from the thorn of crowns. Blood is dripping from his hands and his ankles. Blood is dripping from his back from where he is whipped. He is literally covered in blood. Like the baptism scene that we looked at, Jesus is dripping wet, but this time it is not with water. And like the baptism scene, Jesus is again proclaimed the son of God. But this time, it's not God introducing the mission, but a Roman soldier, a supposed enemy, introducing the completion of the mission at the sight of the blood. Together, the water and the blood tell the whole story of his atoning work. And we actually see them together in scripture. This is something I, I didn't know until I started researching. I think it's pretty cool. We'll have a look here. It comes from John's gospel. So again, the guy that wrote 1 John, uh, this is his eyewitness account of what happened to Jesus on the uh, cross. The verse uh, from chapter 19, verse 24, it comes right after when Jesus says the famous words, it is finished. It says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus's side with a spear, bringing forth a sudden flow of blood and water. There is great 
symbolism in this final act. Jesus, his very last act upon the cross, literally pours himself out for us, blood and water. The work was done. It was time for us, like the centurion, to believe. This guy, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, <clears throat> Tertullian, he was a, a famous Christian apologist. He lived about 120 years after Jesus. And he was really intrigued by the verse that we just read from, uh, from the, the Gospel of John. And in his writings, this is what he wrote about it. He said, for he, Jesus, had come by means of water and blood. That's probably referring to the actual birth of Jesus. That he might be baptized by the water, glorified by the blood, to make us in like manner called by water and chosen by blood. In other words, it is blood and water that made Jesus human, blood and water that made him Christ, and ultimately blood and water that seals our faith. But there is still one other witness that God uses to testify to the saving work of Jesus Christ. In verses 6 and 8, John refers to this last witness as the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. And to understand the role of the Spirit in our faith, we could go back to the cross. Now, remember the verse that I read you from the Gospel of Matthew. We can imagine that there's probably hundreds maybe even more, people standing around the cross witnessing what is happening, the king of the Jews being crucified for all to see. But the Bible only mentions a small group, those who are with the centurion standing guard as people who truly believed. Why is this? Why only a small number in the midst of hundreds of people? And that's because belief or faith is not something that we create or will into existence. It is something that is experienced. It happens to us. In other words, we must rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us into the experience. It is the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes and our hearts like the centurion. And when he does, faith is ours. This is why at the start of every church service, you'll see a group of us in a circle in the back of the room here praying that the Holy Spirit would fill this room. And that's because the words spoken from this stage or the songs sung from this stage can't make you believe in Christ any more than my words could make you fall in love with your spouse. You see, Jesus gave you an access card to the swimming pool, but it's the Holy Spirit that will guide you into the waters of your faith. Without the Holy Spirit, there can be no faith. I'll give you a quick example of what this looks like. I'll use the uh, testimony of my wife here. My wife, Erin, uh, when we were married, she was not a Christ follower, and I was something like the prodigal son. But after my two beautiful daughters were born, when they were little, I decided, like the prodigal son, to come running back to the good father, and I started attending church again. And my wife, being a good wife, she was keen to follow. And so for months, she sat in the church services with me. We sat in small groups, and she gained a good bit of head knowledge. She learned about Christ and the gospel, and she learned about God's character. She even heard about the water and the blood. But if you were to ask her in that first year, if you were to dig a bit deeper, you would have found a still troubled soul. She would call it an emptiness that persisted. Even though her life seemed perfect on the outside, two healthy girls, a good marriage, she's going to church, she still felt a hollowness in her soul. But one day during a sermon, 
the spirit testified. Now, I can't explain how it happened or why it happened right then, but I remember looking over at my wife uh, as we were listening to a sermon on the gospel and just seeing her weep uncontrollably. She had surrendered her doubts, and in return, the spirit had filled the God-shaped hole in her heart. It was the spirit that brought her faith from her head, knowing the truth, to her heart, feeling the truth. It did what no human testimony could do. It proved beyond any doubt the truth of the gospel. Have you, sorry, have you prayed for the Holy Spirit's help recently? Think back to all the things that you've prayed this week, this month. Have you asked God, have you asked the Holy Spirit to give you more faith? If not, it's time to make a decision. We're on to point three, decision time. In verse 10, you can see it up here at the screen, John makes the decision very clear. Either God is telling the truth or, it says right there at the end of verse 10, God is a liar. In verse 12, he puts it another way. We either believe and have eternal life or we don't and we have death. To me, this is really the climax of 1 John 5. John is asking us, who do you believe? The false teachers or the water and the blood and the spirit? What will you put your faith in? The atoning work of the cross or your old world? What will it be? God the Father with a master plan for your salvation or God the liar with nothing to offer? I would like to take a moment to speak to anyone in the room who has not believed that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe it's your first time hearing this information today. Maybe you're like my wife 12 years ago. You have heard, but you have not taken the step of faith to truly believe. If this is you today and you want what John speaks about, if you want that radical gospel love, if you want obedience without burdens, if you want victory over sin and death, you have to make a choice. You cannot stand on the shore and admire the water. Eventually, you have to test the waters. And so the choice is yours to make today. Eternal life, John tells us, is just a decision away. And you can ask God right now to help. All you have to do is begin a conversation with him. And it might feel awkward at first, but if you tell God right now that you want to believe and you ask him to be Lord of your life, he will be willing and waiting to take your hand and lead you into the deeper waters, a living water. Now, maybe you're thinking about making a decision, but you still have questions. Maybe you want to talk to someone about the decision. So for you, I would ask you, if, if you have questions, come down to the front at the end of the service. Myself, Capreet, my wife, any of us would be willing to talk to you and to answer any of the questions you might have. Now I'll finish today by speaking to those who already profess a faith in Christ. In Luke 8, Jesus makes it clear that you can have the gift of faith and forget to use it. We all know this story if we are believers. Jesus is asleep in the back of a boat. A huge storm comes and his disciples are freaking out. And then Jesus wakes up and in verse 25, he turns to them and he asks the ever important question, where is your faith? You can have the gift of faith 
and forget to use it. Now, God knows us. He knows our hearts are prone to wander. He knows our faith is weak. He knows we cannot do it on our own. So maybe today you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you've been knee deep in your faith for years. My prayer is that you will take a small step today and go just a little bit deeper in your faith. For some of you, maybe that means deeper in prayer. I challenge you to just talk to God about your faith. He can handle your doubts. Just be real with him. Maybe for some of you, it means deeper in generosity. Maybe this week or this month, God will challenge you to give a little bit more than you've ever give, given before, to let go of some of those things that you hold on to so tightly. Maybe it means to go deeper in relationships. Maybe you should seek forgiveness. Maybe you should forgive. Maybe you should talk to that person in church or that person in your neighborhood that you haven't talked to, but you feel God urging you to do it. I challenge you to give to God those things that you are afraid to let go of. Trust in him and see what happens. Trust that he will meet you in those newer, deeper, scarier waters. And that he will never leave you or forsake you. And when he does stay with you, I ask that you would abide and rest in that feeling. Because that is a growing faith. I started the lesson today by telling you that there's a lot we can learn from children. And it's true. You can see here two of my children exhibiting a radical faith. <clears throat> but Quincy was not always this way. Sorry, bud, it's true. When Quincy was two, he was actually terrified of the water, all waters. And I remember Aaron and I would go into the pool and we would encourage him to jump in and our arms would be outstretched. We'll catch you, we promised. But Quincy did not believe us. But the more that his little mind began to comprehend the love that we had for him, the more his trust, his faith grew. Until one day we were on vacation and he just went for it. He jumped in and it caught us off guard and I had to catch him in the water and I pulled him out of the water and Aaron and I, we celebrated his faith. And I put him back onto the ledge of the pool and I said, do it again, do it again. And he did. He ran around to the other side of the pool and he jumped in again and again. And each time Aaron and I would catch Quincy and we would lift him up and we would rejoice in his faith. I will end today reminding all of you that you also have a loving father. He is just waiting his arms outstretched. All you have to do is have faith and jump. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words today that you have spoken to us. We thank you, God, that we are not responsible for our faith, God. Our hearts are weak. Our minds are weak. We couldn't handle that task, God, but we are so thankful that you are a God that loves us that you are a God that wants to see our faith grow in you. And so, God, we ask you to work in our hearts today.
For those that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would just show them a glimpse of your radical love, that you would grip their heart, that you would transform their heart at this moment so that they could taste and experience the goodness of our God. For those of us that have been walking in faith for years, but like myself, when I enter a swimming pool, they're moving slowly. Maybe they're stuck in those waters, God. I pray that you would nudge them deeper. God, I pray that you would open their hearts and their minds and challenge them to take a step of faith into those deep, scary waters so that they may know you and trust you and come to love you better. God, we thank you for all the gifts that you give to us when we do have faith, God. I pray that you would help us love radically this week as we go forth. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.